is criminal behaviorology to assist the criminal and civil justice systems to improve our society a podcast like no other here is your host timothy joseph This is October 2020, almost Halloween, when I'm recording this as if it hasn't been a scary enough year already. This is Timothy Joseph, Criminal Behaviorology. Thank you for checking out the podcast. It's been a pretty good year despite everything. We may have, we've had a webinar on uh, novel uses of ABA and we may get another one in either toward the end of this year or beginning of next. We'll get through this year all right and uh, I think Halloween is fitting. I'll, I'll go over a couple things. It'll just be me today but I appreciate you listening. If you have any questions or comments go ahead and write criminalbehaviorology at gmail.com. You can also go on any of the podcast sites and give us a review and let us know. And if you have any suggestions for uh, people we may interview or topics to cover, go ahead and let us know. We're always interested in uh, areas like that. So without further ado, a couple different readings today. The first one I came across is a textbook Criminology Today, an Integrative Introduction. The author is Frank Schmaliger, Schmaliger, S-C-H-M-A-L-L-E-G-E-R, Ph.D., uh, Distinguished Professor Emeritus, University of North Carolina at Pembroke. Uh, This is the fifth edition, copyright 2009, uh, Pearson Prentice Hall, Publishers, this is from uh, part two of the textbook Crime Causation, chapter six, Psychological and Psychiatric Foundations of Criminal Behaviors, on page 234, and the section is Behavior Theory. So when people are interested in what I'm talking about in the Synthesis of Crime and Behavior Analysis. This may give you a little bit of theoretical background. The section reads, Behavior theory has sometimes been called the stimulus-response approach to human behavior. At the heart of behavior theory is the notion that behavior is determined by environmental consequences which it produces for the individual concerned. When an individual's behavior results in rewards or in the receipt of feedback that the individual, for whatever reason, regards as pleasurable and desirable, then it is likely that the behavior will become more frequent. Under such circumstances, the behavior in question is reinforced. Conversely, when punishment follows behavior, chances are that the frequency of that type of behavior will decrease. The individual's responses are termed operant behavior. Because a person's behavioral choices effectively operate on the surrounding environment to produce consequences for the individual. Similarly, stimuli provided 
by the environment become behavioral cues that elicit conditioned responses from the individual. Responses are said to be conditioned according to the individual's past experiences, wherein behavioral consequences effectively define some forms of behavior as desirable and others as undesirable. Behavior theory is often employed by parents seeking to control children through a series of rewards and punishment. Young children may be punished, for example, with spanking, the loss of a favored toy, at least for a period of time, a turned-off television, and so forth. Older children are often told what rules they are expected to obey and what rewards they can anticipate receiving if they adhere to those rules. They also know that punishments will follow if they do not obey the rules. Rewards and punishments have been further divided into four conceptual categories. One, positive rewards, which increase the frequency of approved behavior by adding something desirable to the situation, as when a good child is given a toy. Two, negative rewards, which increase the frequency of approved behavior by removing something distressful from the situation, as when a good child is permitted to skip the morning's chores. Three, positive punishments, which decrease the frequency of unwanted behavior by adding something undesirable to the situation, as when a bad child is spanked. And four, negative punishments, which decrease the frequency of unwanted behavior by removing something desirable from the situation, as when a bad child's candy is taken away. According to behavior theory, it is through the application of rewards and punishments that behavior is shaped. And I'm glad they, they put the distinguished. There's positive and negative uh, rewards, as they call it, or reinforcers, as we call it. And there's positive and negative punishments as well. Behavior theory differs from other psychological theories in that the major determinants of behavior are envisioned as existing in the environment surrounding the individual rather than actually in the individual. Perhaps best, the best-known proponent of behavior theory is, waiting for it, B.F. Skinner, 1904-1990. Skinner, a Harvard professor, rejected unobservable psychological constructs, focusing instead on patterns of responses to external rewards and stimuli. Skinner did extensive animal research involving the behavioral concepts and created the notion of programmed instruction, which allows students to work at their own pace and provides immediate rewards for learning accomplishments. Although behavior theory has much to say about the reformation of criminal offenders through the imposition of punishment, the approach is equally significant for its contributions to understanding the genesis of such behavior. As one writer states, quote, it is the balance of reinforcement and punishment in an individual's learning history, which will dictate the presence or absence of criminal behavior, unquote. Which is from C.R. Holland, Psychology and Crime, an introduction to criminological psychology, London Rutledge, 1989. According to the behavioral model, crime results when individuals, quote, receive tangible rewards, positive reinforcement, for engaging in delinquent and criminal behavior, particularly when no other attractive alternative is available, unquote. A few years ago, for example, uh, 
Sundake Ron Bethune, and that's spelled S-U-N-D-A-H-K-E-H. So Ron Bethune, 15, shot and killed a 26-year-old pizza delivery man who gunned his car motor as Bethune attempted to rob him. Bethune, who had been dabbling in the drug trade and who could afford high-priced clothing, jewelry, and other accoutrements of apparent wealth, was esteemed by many other people in his Morganton, North Carolina community. When the delivery man tried to run from Bethune in front of a group of his friends, Bethune saw no other choice but to kill him. Quote, I just had to show them I wasn't some little punk, unquote, he said afterward in a prison interview. Bethune did not think of the long-term consequences of his behavior on the night of the killing. All he wanted was to ease the approval of those who were watching him. The crowd's anticipated awestruck response to murder was all the reward Bethune needed to pull the trigger that night. He was sentenced to five years in prison for second-degree murder. That's all. Behavior theory has been criticized for ignoring the role that cognition plays in human behavior. Martyrs, for example, persist in what may be defined by the wider society as undesirable behavior, even in the face of severe punishment, including the loss of their own lives. No degree of punishment is likely to deter a martyr who answers to some higher call. Similarly, criminals who are punished for official law violations may find their immediate social group interprets criminal punishment as status-enhancing. As an acquaintance of the author said, after being released from prison where he had served time for murder, quote, You would have thought I won a Grammy Award or something, unquote. Members of his community held him in awe. As he walked down the street, young people would say, quote, There goes John. You better not mess with John. Unquote. From the point of view of behavior theory, criminal punishments are in danger of losing sway over many forms of human behavior in today's diverse society. Our society's fragmented value system leads to various interpretations of criminal punishments thereby changing the significance of experiences like arrest, conviction, and imprisonment. In times past, criminal offenders were often shunned and became social outcasts. Today, those who had been adjudicated criminal may find that their new status holds many rewards. So, uh, that was a uh, actually a pretty good ending to all of that in that particular section because it really is consistent with the idea of reinforcements versus punishments. The punishment for these crimes are a little bit down the road uh, if they ever happen at all. Uh, The reward is immediate, or we prefer to say reinforcement. And as the end of that section makes clear, to some, it may not even be a punishment. It may be a, a reinforcement to, to gain some kind of status or even to go to prison if you don't feel that's much of a punishment. In some cases, they may be happy to be there. They'll be reconnected with family and friends or a social group that they find very rewarding. So uh, 
pretty scary that punishment may not have the intended result that our legal system and society may uh, believe it will. It goes along with the, the thinking that all crime is ecological. It's part of a system of uh, reinforcers that may guide our behavior and shape our behavior uh, just as the same as any of the good behavior is, the bad behavior is shaped as well. Okay, now we're going to switch gears here and have a little bit of a Halloween treat for you. Uh, this article by John Spicer, S-P-I-E-S-E-R, Spicer. It is on AnnArbor.com archives. The title... It's Ann Arbor, Michigan. Used to live in Michigan myself. Trick or treat. A look beyond operant conditioning in dogs and humans. Okay. Halloween is an ancient holiday that has its roots in the uh, Celtic festival of Samhain and the Christian holiday All Saints. The classic celebratory traditions of masquerading as spooks and sharing tricks and treats have been around for many generations. They may be more far-reaching than you've ever known. If you are the owner of a dog and are expecting to entertain traveling bands of ghosts and goblins at your doorstep this coming Halloween night, then you'll get to participate in another not-so-ancient Halloween tradition. Yes, canine Halloween festivities can be interesting, and you may already be giving some thought to who or where you want your dog to be on Halloween night. Okay? There are many possibilities. Barking werewolf sequestered in bedroom, Cujo on a leash, candy nabbing ghost, friendly butler, snoozing mummy, to name a few. Depending on your dog's temperament and level of obedience, Halloween night can be a real test of your ability to control his voluntary behavior, and you may wish you had more effective tools at your disposal. Actually, the tricks and treats so married in our minds with Halloween are an everyday part of many dogs' existence, specifically targeted to affect pattern behaviors. B.F. Skinner's theories of operant conditioning are woven into the fabric of all animal dog training methodology. The basic premise is that when you follow a voluntary action with a negative or positive reinforcement or punishment, you can control the frequency of the action or do away with the action altogether. Clicker training is one example of operant conditioning that uses positive reinforcement for the desired response in the form of a treat. Electronic collar training, for example an invisible fence, is also a representation of operant conditioning using the electronic stim as a punishment for breaking boundary. Without delving into the science or opinions on animal behavior, I will say, having lived around dogs a lot, that you should pay close attention to the manifestations of operant conditioning in your relationship with your dog, whether you initiated them or they evolved 
without your conscious influence. In my house, the sound of metal food bowls clanking instantly results in four dogs lying at my feet awaiting a meal. How many times do you think about that's happened like with your animals, your pets, these little cues you give, the discriminative stimuli, and then they react to it. My appearance at the back gate means four dogs ready for a walk. These are conditioned responses and are an important part of our daily life. But realize that there is room for much more depth in your relationship with your dog, and your dog knows it. I am forever amazed at what I find when I lay the template of operant conditioning over the actions of human society. So much of what we do is fueled by the expectation of reward or the avoidance of reprimand. It seems that we could plausibly come to the point where taking action based on anything other than personal advance is obsolete. Whether it is obeying traffic signals, paying bills on time, saying the right thing at the press conference, we definitely base so many of our actions on whether the outcome will be reward or reprimand, gain or loss, getting dissed or elected. When used judiciously, operant conditioning can support clarity, order, and obedience. But when the balance tips too heavily toward tricks or treats, here comes the horror. Ooh. Sometimes I feel like I am spinning into a Halloweenish portal, where all the ma all that matters is what I can get, or how I can trick someone to, into giving me what I want. It gets crazy and mysterious. Ghouls tempting me. Ghouls tempt. Spooks and vampires around me every corner. Everything I get requires a dance, a performance, a trick. Woof, woof. Save me. If there are only a world where you could be rewarded for your devotion to the good of all. Be recognized for your procurement of self for the advancement of all. How refreshing that would be to know who you are and that what you have to offer is worthy. Beyond operant conditioning, I'll never forget the first time Patch, my dog, assisted me on a training with absolutely no encouragement from me at one and a half years old. It was in a field with an adolescent German shepherd pup working on directional commands and the subject was being less than cooperative. I had let her off the line prematurely and she was responding to a recall command by doing the cost-benefit analysis. As she debated her response to my recall, Patch watched with investment. Her glance shifted between the pup and me and suddenly she lit off in a sprint toward the pup. Upon arrival, she circled the pup twice, doing a rodeo bull kind of dance and emitting a growly bark combo. She then struck out back towards me, stopping a couple of times to shoot a glance back at her inquisitive apprentice. When Patch got back to me, she sat and instantly stared back in the direction of the pup. Much to my surprise, our trainee shot straight over to us, absorbed her praise, and then was put directly on a line of further training. Thanks, Patch. Patch applied herself with no influence on my part. No promise of reward, no concern of reprimand. She simply dedicated herself to a mutual goal, understanding the needs of the moment. 
Magic takes place when an individual lends a helping hand, Paul, that is not inspired by the promise of reward or the concern of reprimand. A person helping a struggling senior, a spontaneous phone call to an old friend, or a relative lending support to a family member. I guess I would refer to this as love, or at least a necessary ingredient of true love. Not to be too negative, but I wish our culture was more naturally geared toward, quote, effort without designs on personal gain, unquote. Maybe then insurance companies would be as invested in our personal health and well-being as they are in profits. Service providers and creditors would stop tricking us into paying for things we're not aware of or don't need. And everyone could stop offering mounds of treats, rewards, or, and points for playing their game. This year I propose taking a deeper look at trick-or-treat, in quotes. Have some fun, feel the vibe, challenge our instinctive responses. Then with a renewed vision of reality, let us return to the selfless work of being alive and invest in the larger picture. If we prioritize the good of the whole, we may not get a treat for everything we do, but tricking us will be less likely. John Spicer, a professional dog trainer and owner of Dog Heart. I would add to that, uh, that's a pretty good little article, and the dog trainers and animal trainers, they're ver- pretty well versed in the behaviorism concepts because they're using them routinely to train animals. He touches on the idea of, of altruism. If we're doing something, can't we do something good without being rewarded for it? Or can't we do something good without avoid, avoiding uh, some kind of sanction for it? And he, he gives some examples there. But th- there's a legitimate question about what is altruism is there any such thing is all the things we do are we really are we kind of getting something for it and is that such a bad thing so i mean what, uh, there's a lot of there's a lot to be said about the concepts of uh, morality and ethics and where they come from and they could be subject to the same laws as any other kind of behavior if you will is it's just we set up our environment, uh, the, the true moral path maybe to set up our environment in just such a way that we get the kind of behavioral results that we want, which, and it could be a more uh, selfless society, a more, um, a more of a society that is concerned with fellow humans without a direct incentive involved. But there's always some kind of reinforcement for any kind of behavior, or it wouldn't be behavior. Well, I hope you enjoyed that, and uh, that's a, another Halloween treat. And we got one more for you, and I, and I do, uh, I do enjoy this one because it, it has a little bit of a historical element to it. And this was written by Emily McCulloch, uh, Masters in Education, BCBA. In the publication uh, B Side 21, they have a lot of good uh, articles in there on behavior analysis. Halloween in the 1900s. 
how applied behavior analysis shaped the future of trick or treating behavioral science in the 21st century. And this was uh, first published apparently October 29th, 2015. She begins. On a typical October 31st, dozens of children may ring your doorbell, yell trick or treat, and then hold out their bag for candy. Have you ever thought about how trick or treating came to be? There is a lot of interesting history that makes trick or treating what it is today, but you may not have heard a lesser known story of a Des Moines woman in 1938, I assume that's uh, Des Moines, Iowa, who we could consider an early behaviorist who shaped a whole community's behavior on Halloween night that has persisted even until today. Halloween in the 1930s looked very different from today. Although children dressed in costumes, it was a night where children caused some serious mischief. Children played plank pranks on neighbors they disliked, made bonfires in the streets, soaped people's windows, or threw rocks and bricks at people's homes. The pranks were also accompanied by begging for food and treats where adults felt blackmailed into giving children food for fear they would be prey to vandalism. In Des Moines, Iowa, every year on November 1st, the newspaper would publish a police report of the list of children and teens charged with crimes committed on the previous night. Although these crimes were punished, the list continued to grow each year. Enough was enough. In 1938, when police answered a record of 550 calls concerning vandalism, Catherine Krieg, who was the director of recreation for the Des Moines Playground Commission, known today as the Parks and Recreation Department, initiated a campaign to change Halloween misconduct. This is interesting. She set to replace violent crimes for some Halloween fun. She announced that October 30 would be set aside as Beggar's Night, where, for that night only, children would be allowed to go door to door, ring the doorbell, and say the phrase, Tricks or Eats. She urged the community to have treats available to children who would perform a trick, which meant singing a song, reciting a joke or poem, demonstrating cartwheels or juggling. Perhaps we can consider a replacement behavior. Krieg used a very effective procedure of behavior change that behavior professionals might call reinforcing alternative, reinforcing alternate behaviors. Every year she reiterated that children who participate in beggar's night should not get rewarded unless they have earned it with their trick or stunt. Now, instead of providing a trick to prevent being pranked or vandalized, homeowners were reinforcing entertaining and alternate behaviors. Not only did Beggar's Night gain traction, it worked. The following year had less than half the police calls reporting vandalism than the previous year, and by 1941, 
Just three years later, there were a recorded 22 calls on Beggar's Night. Even today, if you live in the areas of Des Moines, Iowa, parts of Ohio, Massachusetts, and New York, you may still get children performing tricks as part of their Halloween trick-or-treating. Now, isn't that something? That's that Emily um, McCulloch also co-founded Autism Training Solutions in 2008. And apparently she's involved uh, with Relias Institute at Relias Learning. That's a very interesting piece of history, also criminologically, okay, because we offered a, uh, the, the uh, Catherine Krieg offered a uh, alternate behavior to the vandalism and then measured the results by the police calls. So you see, it can be done. We can look at different methods to reduce, alter, differentially reinforce uh, alternatives to criminal behavior and the result could be less crime or less vandalism and uh, you can get the say kids to say uh, trick-or-treat and uh, it won't be uh, quite as scary as what it was before thank you so much happy Halloween and we will be seeing you in the near future This has been Criminal Behaviorology. Check us out on podomatic.com or anchor.fm. Please send questions, comments, and requests for transcripts to criminalbehaviorology at gmail.com.